More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. You know, of all the crises we face in Canada right now, freedom of thought, conscience, and expression might just be the greatest. Our Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees these things. Freedom of conscience, religion, belief, thought, expression, all of the ways that we communicate our deepest uh, beliefs and, and values and principles to other people. And right in the Charter, it says that the purpose of guaranteeing freedom of expression is to promote the search for and the attainment of truth for participation in social and political decision-making, and also for the opportunity for individual self-fulfillment through expression. So the charter itself says these things are important for personal well-being, for the collective search for truth, and also for holding a society together. But we're seeing an increase in formal limitations on freedom of expression. If you look at bills C-11 or C-36, for example, but also, um, a less formal, more insidious culture of censorship and silence creeping in to all facets of society, to government, media, our educational institutions, and I've been wondering, maybe in the art world too. You know, I recently had the chance to sit down with an incredible Canadian artist, Josh Thiessen. He's an international award-winning artist based in Stony Creek. He's best known for his hyper-surrealist oil paintings, which reflect the interaction between the human-made world and the natural world, and also focus on the destruction of civilizations and our loss of freedom. In 2012, Josh was listed by the Huffington Post as one of the world's top 10 prodigy artists and the only male prodigy in North America by psychologist Dr. Joanne Ruth Satz. The Art Renewal Center designated him Associate Living Master, and he has been mentored by acclaimed Canadian wildlife artist Robert Bateman. He's exhibited in over 100 ex exhibitions including the National Gallery of Canada. Josh has won over 60 awards and honors, including the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal and Canada's Top 20 Under 20 for his artistic accomplishment and his philanthropic work. Josh's artistic abilities, I think, are just one aspect that, that make his personality remarkable. He also has great insight into the challenges of our time how we got here, and how we can find some hope and meaning moving forward. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with this incredible artist and human being, and I, I really hope you will too. Well, Josh, I'm so incredibly intrigued and delighted to be chatting with you today. I don't talk to artists very often, but I think we have a number of crises in our country right now, and freedom of expression is one of them, and the arts is one way of, of, of expressing ourselves, perhaps the most powerful way, to be honest, and we should talk about that in a little bit. But let's start mm -hmm. with your work. For viewers who aren't familiar with it, um, art is, is so powerful. It can communicate messages and ideas that words often can't. And your work is an incredible, I, I think I've seen you describe it as narrative hyper-realism and the degree of, of detail and realism, especially in your animals, is, is just really remarkable. They they leap off the page. I know people have said, who have tried to touch things in your work because it looks like, like you can, like it's three-dimensional. But can you tell us a little bit about the themes in your work, especially these beautiful images of animals roaming these abandoned remnants of human civilization? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I was mentored under Robert Bateman when I was 15 years old. I had the incredible honor of studying with him out in British Columbia. And from, from that experience, I got involved in local conservation efforts. I always had a love for the, the natural world, for painting animals. And I, I transitioned from you know chalk pastel to acrylic to, to oil paint. And uh, eventually I wanted to find my own voice and, and not just be pigeonholed to the, the wildlife art world where animals are in their natural uh, habitats, but uh, to reflect how today we're often experiencing um, human animal conflict, conflicts and uh, uh, animals uh, coming into the cities. Um, and because I have an interest in, in, in philosophy and specifically biblical studies was uh, an area of uh, research in my 
post-secondary degree, I was fascinated with um, this biblical prophet Isaiah, and he has these poetic word pictures of animals like hyenas taking over Babylon. And as you know, Babylon was like this world empire, this civilization that no one thought would ever collapse. And, and yet um, Isaiah had this you know, imagination to see that you no know, one day um, there would be a demise because, you know, Babylon exploited the land, they exploited people, they oppressed, um, you know, Israel and the surrounding nations. So I began thinking, you know, with my work, how can I have um, a modern interpretation of that, of, of animals, um, you know, roaming lands, whether that be you know, uh, orca swimming down a, uh, a canyon river or a sandhill crane in an abandoned uh, Greek temple. Uh, I'm just really fascinated with uh, nature's reclamation. It's so fascinating to me. I think the thing that I, I mean, in addition to the technical proficiency of your work, the thing that really struck me initially when I saw it in person, I've had the pleasure of doing that, um, what struck me is how you've reversed the power imbalance that we, I think humans now, we have this tendency to feel um, like we've conquered the, the chaos or the riskiness of life or the uncontrollable elements of life that we've conquered mm -hmm. the natural world, right? With our, our science, our technology, our mastery of all. But your works are, they, they let the animal um, rise to the surface again and almost roam peacefully in our disasters and our mistakes and what we couldn't stick around to control anymore. Is, is that a conscious yeah. um, choice on your part? Is that how you see humanity evolving? Are we on a path of, of self-destruction? Will we very soon abandon our built structures, including our political structures? Uh, so I, I think it is fascinating just seeing the, the development through history, um, especially, you know, philosophically, the, the idea of human centrism or anthropocentrism, where humans are at the center of the, the universe. And often that creates this arrogance that, um, you know, we're owners of the earth as opposed to, to stewards. And that manifests in, in so many different ways, but um, you know, leadership is is one of them where I you know believe in in servant leadership as opposed to you know totalitarian uh, rule. And you know, you touched on on science, and um, you know, of course, you know much more about this than than I do. But Enlightenment philosophers. Um, really for this notion of the the world was just this this grand mechanism and when it was disenchanted it could be um exploited for various ends and you know i'm to so grateful for all that science has accomplished all the the discoveries that that are made uh, i'm very you know pro science that way um but you know science isn't neutral there are people uh, mm -hmm. behind it that have uh, nefarious ends and uh, unfortunately um, when when politics you know gets it involved, um, ultimate power corrupts, and so I think that has become a more prevalent theme in my work. And what what I like about animals is that that animals di disarm us because um, it, you know my view is there's a moral innocence to to animals, and they they follow their their biological design that the creator has, has given them um but we as humans we do have a unique special role as the 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 species that has you know dominion but i feel this is a, a righteous dominion this the stewardship that that we have um to be faithful uh with with the land that we've been given so interesting you mentioned the enlightenment and we revered it for a long time i think for its ability mm -hmm. to put reason at the center of, exactly. of scientific inquiry and politics and and maybe even things like poetry and art and and literature yeah. but do you think that we have taken that too far i can't remember where but i feel like i read uh something disparaging you that you had to say about the greeks and and was it a oh, long yes. time of them being a too anthropocentric with being too airy and we all know the Greeks I mean think of the the tragedies in Oedipus and um 
what happens, the consequence, consequences for us when we become too arrogant, too hubristic. Do you think that we are living now sort of the lineage or the long-term effects of the Enlightenment's heavy focus on what reason can do for us, as opposed to, I think, put it so eloquently, the, the moral innocence of the animals who we often think of as lacking reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly um, what from from studying a bit of Plato that, that I picked up on and later Gnostic teaching, I think, takes it to, to an extreme of um, there's this, uh, as you're familiar with the great chain of being where uh, humans are, are at the top of the totem pole, so to speak, because they can reason. And uh, I, I think that unfortunately what happens is there's a um, kind of a progression to more sort of a disembodied way of, of living where uh, the, the platonic ideals, which I, I totally, you know, believe in, you know, truth and beauty and, um, mm. you know, rational minds that, we have to be careful to still um, uh, affirm the, the goodness of the, the natural world, the goodness of, of animals. And I think art does that because art is kind of this um, mediator, I believe, between abstract ideas and embodied living. And uh, creativity and story um, appeals to our, our affections, our emotions. And I think we have to be very careful with this because of course, uh, narrative and storytelling can also be, be deceptive. So artists do have to, you know, have, have virtue. And, and you've talked so much about um, uh, civic virtue, which I, I totally uh, resonate with. Um, but because like modern psychology has proven that um, unfortunately humans uh, respond more to arguments based on emotion and story and art as opposed to rational logic and reasoning um, that the arts have uh, a real key role in um, shaping our narratives and how we uh, view the world that we live in. It gives artists and writers and philosophers and psychologists incredible power, doesn't it, that I think we often don't think we have. And you're right. I mean, as someone who studied philosophy for a long time and in the analytic tradition, which focuses on reason and the idea that reason mm -hmm. is the ultimate motivator, it turns out <laughs> statistically uh, in practice, that isn't that isn't true for most people, that emotions and that story are far more powerful and that you can communicate with imagery, intentional imagery, something much more powerful and, and more efficient. I was very struck, I saw you in an interview, I think, quoting the beautiful poem from T.S. Eliot, Wasteland, and you, you correct me if I get this line wrong, but something about great civilizations being sort of arrogant and thinking that they will be permanent and and powerful, mm -hmm. and, and yet they all eventually fade. I'm so curious to ask you, do, do you think that as humans we're ultimately self-destructive? I mean, is Eliot getting at this idea that our, our achievements will always dissolve because we will always, whether it's we whether it's that we make them poorly in the first place and so they don't have longevity, or we make them well, but mm -hmm. then we destroy them for some reason. Do you think that, that humans are self-destructive by nature? I mean, I, I do, you know, believe in this theological notion of the, the sinful nature um, that as, as humans, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has talked about the line between good and evil runs to the heart of every person, which is this idea that uh, we all have a tendency towards uh, self-destruction and wrongdoing. And I think what, what concerns me um, is that in the society that we're living in, we have more of a, I guess, Manichaean or dualistic approach where we lump certain uh, groups of people, they're the bad, the bad ones, uh, whether that be political lines or, or class lines or uh, wh whatever, that uh, we, we have to you know, have a, a, a great humility there that we all have these these tendencies um, to, towards evil. And uh, yeah, I think um, 
you know, his, historically speaking, that uh, you know, when there was this uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that that shaped society, that people cultivated these virtues, so we could have you know a free society, but people had restraints on those freedoms. Um, that they had like a, an external uh, moral framework that they uh, desired to align themselves. And I think now with what Charles Taylor has talked about, this expressive individualism, this move from, author, uh, from authority to authenticity, mm. I think this self-destruction is just ramping up now because each person is a law unto himself. And mm. I think that's where uh, we're going to get more more conflicts because we don't have this this shared moral fabric. So is that due to um, too much self-reliance that we don't have a sort of compass outside of ourselves to align our lives yeah. with? And, um, or, or is it sort of a fundamental loss of meaning? And I ask that because I feel like every mm -hmm. interesting person I talk with these days is talking about meaning and how mm -hmm. we just don't have it in the 21st century. And whether that's because fewer of us are religious than ever before, whether it's because of this sort of postmodern free fall, whether it's because science has dominated too much and science ultimately itself can't give meaning or it's a combination of these things. Mm -hmm. But um, do you think that we are maybe historically um, unique in our loss of meaning or absence of meaning? Yeah, yeah. And, and I could take this question in a number of different directions, <laughs> but um, it's such a, it's like, it's a great question. Um, With definitely so, theological overtones to it, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and definitely, you know, um, one of the major themes in my work is uh, trying to cultivate wonder and awe through an appreciation for the natural world, but um, mo most importantly is indicating that this world, this universe, isn't just a cosmic accident. And I think that um, the universe that we've been living in has been lovingly created. And oftentimes people who go out and, and see a beautiful sunset or they ascend to the top of a mountain, um, even psychology studies have, have confirmed this, but they open themselves up to uh, the idea that there might be something bigger or grander beyond themselves. And uh, I hope that, that my art can, can point people uh, to that because um, I, I think the, the problem with, with today is that we, we don't have uh, a real good grasp on the, the frailty of, of civil, civilization, of uh, you know, scientific progress. And um, this uh, you know, branches off in, in so many different applications of that, but similar to you know, finding meaning and purpose that, uh, of course, we can uh, find meaning, meaning and purpose, you know, with, without, you know, God, for instance, a religious um, framework that you can uh, find meaning, whether it be Platonic ideals, these things that we strive for, or the Stoics, but it seems that when there, there is a, an absolute truth, like a creator God, there's more of a, a rudeness um, to, to following out, following that that creator's, uh, you know, uh, wise ways of, of flourishing in this world. And when we uh, go against the grain of the universe, as it's been said, we get splinters. And I think today we're getting many splinters. <laughs> Moral splinters, isn't that a beautiful idea? But also beautiful, you, you mentioned wonder and awe, and that requires or maybe creates a sense of humility, doesn't it? When people mm -hmm. go out into nature and you stand at the foot of a mountain and look up, or you stand at the edge of the ocean and look out, um, you feel that you are, you have, you're very small within your Mm -hmm. in your environment and and I think your work certainly communicates that I, I'm you remind me of the title but the whale swimming behind it the abandoned the ruins yeah the band cathedral yeah yeah whale pin is definitely one because um I was in England and there's this old uh cathedral St. Dunstan's on East and it had been bombed after World War II and just been uh uh ruined and so I envisioned this, this whale part of yeah it yeah, still, still is there. And 
I mean, I have a, another painting of a um, Indian elephant uh, breaking through, breaking off its chains and running out of a, a Hindu temple. And, um, you know, so often animals are, are chained and so I want to see them, you know, break free. But so often as humans, we, we want to control nature and, mm -hmm. and not let it free. So, but, uh, but yeah, uh, wonder is, is I think a, a driving uh, ecological virtue and, and a virtue for all political discourse. It makes me sad. It, it, it feels to me like we have so much less wonder and awe in our lives. And that involves a kind of, um, you know, living the questions and being comfortable. I just wrote an essay on uncertainty. Mm. I was thinking about this a lot and how we seem to be trying so hard to avoid unknowns and, and, the, and the discomfort of uncertainty. But it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to, to feel a kind of amazement at something you don't understand that's bigger than you are. Um, I, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you, you know, you, you're an artist, a beautiful artist, but I know that faith is also very um, important in your life. And, and I'm sure our viewers can get a sense from that just listening to you talk so far, but what is your sense of, of the state of both freedom of artistic expression in Canada these days, but also mm -hmm. freedom of religion or conscience. I mean, we've seen uh, pastors uh, jailed over the last two years for violating COVID policies. And, and I'm a little out of touch with the art world now, but I'm wondering, do you feel, I mean, we have censorship bills that are on the table or, or, or passed, and that's going to get much more restrictive, I think, in terms of what we're allowed to say mm -hmm. with our words on mm -hmm. the internet. Do you feel a kind of stricture of your artistic expression, and especially um, expression along theological lines in Canada? Yeah, so I think the history of, of art has revealed uh, that that over the centuries, um, a lot of the constraints have, have been thrown off, whether it be uh, a, a move from representational art to, to abstract art, um, or even like the, the moral uh, strictures and the like the sexual revolution coincided with, uh, you know, the, the surrealist movement and other uh, postmodern movements of art. And so, I, I want to be um, clear, though, that it's really often been artists who have often been the most sensitive to uh, calling out in, injustice and and evils uh, through, throughout history. Um, think of, you know, Pablo Picasso's Guer famous Guernica painting uh, that was uh, very much an anti-war message um, opposing the, the, the Nazis. And I, I think that um, what's happened is that over time, we we kind of have these these two wings of the the art world. We have the the art establishment, and then um, like like that would be more like academia um, and that discourse, art critics and art historians and art theorists, and then we have like more the the commercial gallery world. And, and that's more the world that, that I occupy in, um, as you know, I represented from galleries in New York and had shows in, in LA and elsewhere. Um, and also here in Canada, um, I've had so many great art collectors of my work. And so um, the, the, the commercial gallery has focused more on the, the formalist qualities of art, but the, the whole, um, you know, you, the, the postmodern notion of, you know, beauty is an eye of the whole, beholder or moral relativism. I, I think that is waning because I see kind of a, an increasing politicization in all sectors. Um, I've often found that in Canada, it tends to skew more towards the, the art establishment um, where you have more, more gatekeepers and more of um, a, a dogmatic approach where art is more conceptually driven or, or politically driven. And um, in comparing the US and Canada, um, Canada does have many more art grants and the Can Canada Arts Council um, is, is very you know, generous that way. But one thing I've noticed over the years that um, it, it's very driven by the artists having to have a certain political disposition, usually very far left, and it's become quite a, an echo chamber. Um, and I, I see that to some extent too with, with galleries where um, 
you know, there's uh, in, in a different way, um, you know, art, art critics, popular art critics like Jerry Saltz, they're very, you know, very far, far left. And I mean, there's many things that I agree with um, those artists and critics on. Like, I, I don't kind of neatly fall into the, the boxes of like left wing or right wing um, because like my my faith, my, um, you know, apprenticeship apprenticeship to following the way of Jesus means that I, I won't be co-opted by these ethical packages that, that politics seems to hand to us. So uh, I, I've though been pleasantly surprised um, how there has been an openness in some of these American galleries that they, they know I, I am a Christian. Um, I don't push it through my work. It's not uh, overtly explicit, but that I've had conversations with with gallery owners uh, about it. Um, if, if I'm honest, I think that the Canadian art market is just a lot smaller. So uh, Toronto isn't known as a place with a lot of commercial uh, galleries at all. So I've just gone where my work has been accepted. And um, while maybe the art world is kind of a an, an echo chamber, politically speaking, I have seen more and more of an openness to spirituality and uh, exploring that. Um, mm. And so I think the the hold of modernism, that kind of militant atheism, I think has definitely waned. Um, top galleries have shows about shamanism in New York City. It's it's very in vogue. So there there's definitely a lot of change in the art world. That that was a long answer. I'm sorry. Uh, well it's really interesting to me because if we are going to see words more carefully regulated on the internet, but we don't mm -hmm. see a parallel kind of censorship in the art world when it comes to visual imagery, it would might be interesting to watch how mm -hmm. um, dissenting voices or contrary voices or different themes emerge visually as opposed to in the written word through literature or um, online and social media or through journalism. So it'd be very interesting to see how that develops as we move forward and out of this pandemic situation and as we deal mm -hmm. with this climate issue and transgenderism and the Roe versus Wade and all these things that we seem to be in such a crisis morally, socially, politically. And see, humans always have to work, work those things out somehow, right? If we can't work them out it, with our words, then maybe it's going to be the visual artists or the musical artists who, who work those things out for us. Yeah, I, I definitely hope so. And I mean, if, if I'm honest, though, during this pandemic, I've sadly just witnessed um, how many artists and, you know, creative seem to have been co-opted by, you know, pushing forward a narrative with with the pandemic, like uh, artists who are, are paid off to, you know, do Instagram ads for get your vaccine or, you know, mm -hmm. social distance. And I mean, I, I, I'm not against artists. artists who are hired for um, campaigns. Is that what you think? Yeah. Hired for campaigns. I, I find that's very uh, cringy <laughs> when, <laughs> when it, it's like, I guess where I'm, I'm a bit concerned um, with, with where the, the art world is going is, is, uh, and this is very extreme, but of course, you know, with the, the, the Soviet era art, um, like I grew up in, in Russia and uh, we saw these grand sculptures that were commissioned for artists to um, basically represent this utopia of, of communism. And I, I don't think we're that extreme to, today, but uh, I, I have heard um, politicians at various, like the, the National Endowment for the Arts and, and those type of um, political social programs that they actually see art as a way to, to push forward their mm -hmm. um, political agenda that the current administration is in. And I, I think art should be um, exposing, uh, you know, politics, exposing any any injustices that, that are seen and um, I, I hope to see more of that. I do see some some artists, um, uh, certainly in in the environmentalist uh, world, uh, many artists like like myself are, are exposing that. But in some issues that are more aligned to the right, there's definitely a reticent for reticence for artists to speak out because they're afraid that they'll be be censored by the art magazines or galleries.
Well, imagery is so powerful. I, I mean, thinking of, of communist propaganda, visual propaganda that was used to support ideological, and I'm thinking, you know, the fist, the iron fist yeah. up in the air and, yeah. and legs. And so, you know, I mean, it's very, it's so much more powerful and, and, and it lingers in the memory so much more than, than written word tends to do. I'm very glad you brought up Russia. It's It's been very clear to me over the last couple of years that when I started hearing from people who were worried about the let's say the broader political directions of our country and limitations of, of individual freedom and this push towards you know collectivism and doing your part for for the, for the group and 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 so many of the people expressing those concerns had let me say last names that were hard to pronounce and that's because many of them were from you know, parts of the world that have really struggled with freedom and independence. So many of them were from Eastern Europe, they were from Russia, they were from uh, Germany, whether they were on, you know, whether they had a, 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 a Jewish lineage or, or a German lineage, um, some were from South Africa. Can you tell our viewers a little bit about your experience with Russia? I know your parents went there as missionaries, your father was a professor, I believe, right? And this was in was this the mid '90s or late '90s? Just when Russia was starting yes. to sort of come out of, you know, they're trying to remake themselves in some sense. Yes. A little yes. bit. So I don't know how much you remember, but your parents. No. Sure. Yeah. So so yeah, my parents went in the early '90s, and the Iron Curtain had shortly fallen, so foreigners were able to enter the country, and they were invited. Um, as as professors uh, to in the theological school to help train young pastors as there is more of a uh, a religious uh, openness in the country, mm -hmm. um, and so I was born uh, in in ninety five uh, into this world where um, in Russia in Russia yeah yeah I was born in Moscow and uh, lived in Krasnodar for the first six years of my life so. Uh, we we knew that, and we had heard many stories um, of uh, people whose grandparents or uncles had been taken off to the the gulag, and how uh, there there was just a, a deep sadness and and mourning that still uh, was like a heavy blanket over the the, the Russian people, and so. Of of course, maybe some saw, you know, the hope of 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 freedom, and uh, then now where we see where we are now with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, and um, you know, uh, Putin being uh, part of the the KGB ahead KGB. It's it's uh, uh, sad to see where things uh, have gone, and um, uh, interestingly, like uh, I, I recently read the the Gulag. Archipelago, uh, the book, and and I was just fascinated, um, you know, digging into the the history more. I was so young, obviously, when I lived in Russia, but um, just hearing these stories of how uh, family members turned on one another um, so so easily when uh, there was that that fear and panic um, and that kind of false utopic idea that uh, if if we get out the bad eggs, we can. Um, you know, live in this, this, this grand world. So um, yeah, there's, I can see why some people see parallels to today. That's so interesting. There's this kind of purity focus today, isn't there? And such parallels to, to the Russian context. And I, I've often wondered where that comes from. Is it a, I think we have a longstanding obsession with purity, uh, that millennia, old obsession with purity to sort of cleanse the tribe of what might threaten it. Um, but we, everyone, is it that, or is it about our own desire to be let off the hook, morally speaking? So as long as we can blame someone else, as long as we can locate, you know, the fault in our stars and somebody else, then we can sort of absolve ourselves of, of responsibility. Um, it's just striking to me hearing mm -hmm. you talk about, about that uh, issue in Russia and how we seem to be cycling through that again. Do you have any insight into whether or not, does, is that tendency within the individual born from broader political movements 
or do you think it's the other way around? Do we see mm-hmm. this tendency to kind of scapegoat each other and gaslight each other, and then that creates a certain political movement? Do you have any sense of which comes first? Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I think uh, uh, this is probably reaching the the limits of of my training, but um, <laughs> well, that's where the I, interesting I do, things happen, so that's okay. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is often you know a history of of scapegoating. I was recently uh, reading about um, the bubonic plague and the you know the black uh, death in the the medieval ages, and apparently the the Jews were the ones that were scapegoated and and blamed for. Um, all, all the deaths, and we we seem to need uh, someone to to blame, um, and that is, I, I think, uh, just part of the, the the human condition that that's hard to get out of. And I think um, you know, with the the, the uh, Stalinist Russia and um, the the communism, that there was just a a passivity. A lot of uh, academics in the early 1900s would have never thought that. Russia would return to uh, medieval era torture in in order um, to to do what uh, uh, their their goals were to you know what they aspired to, um, and so I I think there can be um, kind of a a passivity when when power is is not uh, kept in in check, and also the idea of like a a moral uh, vacuum, and I think that's what what happened uh, in Russia that. Uh, you know, the, the Orthodox Church had its power and influence had had waned and uh, it was in a way, you know, co-opted, like in many ways it, it has been to today, um, where where it's kind of rubber rubber stamped um, uh, the, 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 the leader um, of, of its, the leaders of its day, uh, the dictatorships. And so, uh, yeah, I think people um, see uh, political ideology as something that that fills that that vacuum for for meaning, and so um, you know whether they have to do some uh, morally unseemly thing, it's it's justified because of the the new world that they think that the ideal ideology can produce. Mm. I, I'm trying to segue here to another fascinating part of your life. And I think there is a segue because there are interesting questions here about what kinds of societies need to exist or what sort of social structures or what sort of atmosphere of freedom needs to exist for certain exceptional persons to emerge and thrive. And I hope I'm not embarrassing you to say, I think this is quite well known about you, that you have been called a prodigy, an art prodigy. And I don't mean that in any casual sense. You've had, I mean, psychologists have studied you and um, and have uh, psychologist uh, Joanne Ruthsatz in particular has studied you and your brother, which is a fascinating story, who's a has been called a musical prodigy. Um, And I wanna ask you a series of questions about this because I think it's so interesting, but can we start with her explanation of why you might have become a prodigy in the first place? And I was reading her fascinating account about how uh, your mother, when she was pregnant with you, had a traumatic experience in Russia and that's possibly linked and almost unbelievably to your exceptional talent now. Do you you wanna tell that story a little bit in your own words? Uh, yeah, so in in Russia, um, there was a uh, in the nineties a crime ring going around, uh, cutting out uh, full term uh, mothers while they're pregnant and extracting the babies and then selling them on the black market um, to Westerners. And um, my mom and dad didn't know that at the time, but uh, they had a traumatic experience where uh, a masked man attempted to to break into our uh, flat and uh, you know mir- miraculously my dad who was uh, much smaller than this uh, intruder was able to to fight him off and push back the the, the door um, but uh, my mom in the meantime while she was running to the door to help my dad she tripped and fell on her stomach and this was uh, uh, she was almost ready to to give birth to to me and uh, I I was um, born with with complications, but it wasn't until 
uh, and I was given, you know, many, many drugs. That's what was normal in the Russian hospitals. They just, you know, drugged up the, the mothers and the, the babies, um, you know, sadly, I think had, had side effects. Um, and I was very lethargic when I was born. I wouldn't wake up. I constantly slept and slept. So it wasn't though until many, many years later um, so I had, you know, I became uh, an artist at a very young age and started uh, ex uh, exhibiting, you know, artistic abilities at, at three, four years old uh, when my Russian nanny noticed I was doing lots of art, arts and crafts at advanced um, stage. But um, like I was saying, saying many years later, um, a, a psychology professor from Ohio State University who, dis who studies prodigies uh, she came across my work from a Huffington Post article that listed me as, you know, 10 prodigies, art prodigies you should know in the world. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they, they included uh, my work, uh, which was quite surprising. So um, she, uh, Dr. Rusatz, um, then came, she drove up through a blizzard to her place in, in Canada and uh, did IQ testing and also autism quotient testing because uh, her research shows uh, a link between prodigiousness and, and autism, um, but that uh, uh, her, her genetic studies have, have shown uh, 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 basically on the, the, the chromosome that is associated with autism prodigious abilities that often don't come with the social deficits that autism has. So uh, she also, um, wanted to, to know uh, if I had any siblings and she studied uh, my, my brother as well. And, and it was um, a windfall she, for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so she then discovered, oh, Zach had all these like 10 concussions. And then he became just fascinated with music and, and voraciously studying music theory and, um, uh, you know, mastering the eight string guitar. And she started putting the pieces together. Like he had these traumatic head injuries. And mm. then I also had, she theorized a traumatic head injury uh, in vitro um, in Russia. And uh, she then uh, wrote about this in her book, The, the Prodigy's Cousin, um, if, if people want to read more of the, the story. But uh, mm -hmm. it was just amazing that uh, these head injuries, which could cause so much damage, brought about something good in both of us. The thing that's so, I mean, in addition to the fact that this could happen twice in one family, the thing that I find so fascinating about it is this tendency of the human brain or the capacity to compensate mm -hmm. for injury or suffering or challenges. If I understand her work correctly, the theory is that there can be this left hemisphere trauma mm -hmm. and then that um, can be compensated for by something in the in the right hemisphere and they become super active or super focused and but that is yeah. an interesting metaphor isn't it for for life more generally that so often um, good comes out of bad so often excellence or deep insight or genius comes out of uh, trauma and challenge and near complete brokenness. You you must think about that. I I, I do you reflect on this the, this phoenix from the ashes sort of theme. Mm -hmm. to yeah, definitely, and it, it relates to other areas of my my life as well. Where uh, you, you know my my family sadly we contracted uh, Lyme disease in Russia. And uh, sadly, because of that, uh, my parents um, in the early 2000s weren't able to uh, return to their uh, full-time work. And so we were uh, basically stuck in Canada. Um, my, my mom and dad got sick uh, first and my brother and I, we uh, had symptoms as well. Um, but if it weren't for the fact that we had been granted Canada, uh, my artistic talent probably wouldn't have been developed. I had artist mentors come alongside me and, uh, you know, think of exhibiting my work to the public, which my parents wouldn't have uh, done likely. And so it, it is amazing, this, this theme of, of beauty coming from, from ashes. 
We can feel, I, I think a lot of people feel really defeated right now, worried, anxious about the future, like there's no way out, like we can't get back to, you know, Canada being the greatest country in the world, that we can't get back to a state of freedom. But, you know, if your story is, is any lesson for us, and so many, um, you know, heroes of the past or great minds of the past, I think, have, have, have shown us this, that very often that's what it takes in order for something more beautiful to be born. You need to have mm -hmm. destruction and there's a kind of a cathartic uh, theme there, isn't there, that you, you almost mm -hmm. need, you need the pain and the suffering in order to produce something beautiful and insightful. And I want to be mindful of your time, but I just want to ask you a couple of questions about, you know, what do you see for the future? I know that in your work, you explore, you know, the theme of, of sort of a restlessness of humans to get out of this fallen world and return to a more perfect world. What do you see humans doing in the next year, in the next decade, in the next 50 years to try to grapple with or resolve the state that we're in? Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, one thing I, I didn't mention earlier, but um, I, I see uh, well, I, I did allude to how artists are, are the ones who often uh, call out injustice. And I mm -hmm. think that uh, in this pandemic, it has been a, a wake up call for, for many people that um, they, they things that they would never thought would have happened in, in the West, um, like, you know, a vaccine travel mandates or uh, people losing their jobs because they didn't have a, a medical intervention, intervention like in, in your case. Um, and I'm inspired by by people of view who, based on their convictions, would would take a, a, a stand like that. Um, I think I would like to see uh, just a, a practically speaking is really a, a return to to nature and to things like, um, mm -hmm. you know, being uh, in, in unity with our, our ecosystems and to affirm kind of this embeddedness that we have. I have uh, been discouraged because on the one hand I see so much progress um, with recognizing things within the ecological crisis and so many uh, scientists um, uh, uh, calling things out uh, and, and warning us but then uh, so quickly we've given a free pass to um, you know on the one hand um, you know oil companies have been exposed for misinformation campaigns to cover up um, their you know oil spills and many other things but then when you look at pharmaceutical companies, they've been given legal immunity, they've paid billions and billions and billions of dollars in fines. And yet, uh, in many ways, the, the capitalism that drives the oil companies also drives the pharmaceutical companies. But yet, it seems like um, many within the environmentalist community has, has turned a blind eye to, to that. And uh, I think um, we, we need to uh, hold accountable um, big business and also just um, not have this uh, uh, constant um, uh, trust that, well, uh, it, you know, medical or scientific interventions are going to save us. They're going to be our, our, our salvation and our, our religion. And um, I, I think, I, I hope in the coming years that uh, we'll move uh, towards a, a direction where we can have and continue to have uh, free discourse and debate over these issues because uh, in a free and, and thriving uh, society, uh, we, we need to be able to talk with people who have different religious, political, or um, you know, medical uh, persuasions on, on various issues. So uh, I think that's uh, what uh, hopefully my my art and my writing will continue to address. Yes, we haven't even talked about your writing. I know you've written some beautiful essays, and I have no doubt that you will continue to explore many of the things we've talked about today in your art. And I think you are, you know, not just an artist, but a theologian in a way, a philosopher, clearly a deep thinker. And I have great uh, respect and gratitude for, for all of those dimensions of yourself. Um, can, you, can you finish just by giving us a sense of where people can find you and maybe telling us a little bit about your Streams in the Wasteland book that accompanies your, your new body of work? Oh yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, 
So yeah, my second uh, monograph uh, art book is called Streams in the Wasteland, and uh, it, it features my latest painting series over the last uh, six years. And so I think we can uh, see it, can it be... over your left shoulder, yeah. right? Is that your book? There? Yeah, it's all left Beautiful. shoulder. I, I have it here. Um, I see it Beautiful. there. And so uh, it also includes um, the painting stories that accompany each work and my creative process. And so it, it's really a book for, you know, art level, art lovers, um, people who love nature, and also anyone who wants to, to think deeply about our uh, relationship uh, with Earth, our relationship to uh, civilizations, as we've talked about early. So uh, it's, it's available on Amazon and also on my website at uh, joshteason.com. That's wonderful. And what's your brother's unique contribution to the book? I know this yes. is very. Thank you for. Yeah, I want so to remind the, you. The, very fascinating and unique. Yes. Yeah. So, so this was a collaborative project with with my brother Zach. He's um, a composer and uh, has has composed for films and video games. And so I uh, approached him to see if he would. Uh, be able to uh, compose a track for each painting in the book. So uh, he composed uh, a, a unique uh, original soundtrack. So a CD comes with the book and um, it's, it's a very uh, meditative process. You can look at the, the art and uh, enjoy the, the music. And so he commissioned uh, over a dozen musicians all around the world um, to, to play like the, the cello and all these uh, uh, very interesting uh, instruments that, that he composed for and he himself recorded uh, too. So it, it's uh, yeah, kind of neat to collaborate with your brother. Uh, during the pandemic, we had extra time <laughs> to, to work on a, on a project like that. And we decided, you know, we're not going to get just down and depressed that we're stuck in our homes, in our studios, but how about we do a project that um, people might get around uh, and support. And, you know, we were able to crowdfund over 11,000 to be able to, you know, cover the cost for this project. And so um, we're, we're really pleased with the, the response that we've received so far from the project. Well, Josh, thank you so much. I think this conversation is going to give people a lot of hope from a bit of a different angle, not just talking about, you know, hope and virtue explicitly, but uh, through the lens of art. And I think we have a tendency these days to focus so exclusively on science, not that science and art are dichotomous. I mean, I think they have a lot in mm. common, but we have a tendency to think that science will save us and art is kind of a luxury or, or, or frivolity. And I think what we're seeing, we're living now the costs of that kind of exclusive mindset and I'm really grateful for your 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 skill your dedication to your work um, your insight and your voice we need the artists in a broad sense to be um to be <laughs> to be our moral conscience I think and and I'm just very grateful to you for that so thank you so much Oh, well, thank you very much, Julie. And uh, I, I love following your art too uh, over the years. And that's how we first uh, connected at an art show. And um, I, I just love, uh, you know, your mind and you're brilliant. And I just really resonate with how you can be so creative, but also such a, a deep thinker uh, as well. This has been a, a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much.